0: Hello, once again, this is Space Nuts. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, coming up on this episode, we've got a, a little bit to talk about. Uh, they've been digging around on the moon. I know that's true. Um, humans have done it. But this is uh, the case of uh, ground-penetrating radar, and they've made some really fascinating discoveries about our lunar buddy. Uh, and uh, Perseverance, which is sort of trundling around on the surface of Mars looking for, you know, life, etc has uh, just taken a bit of a peek upwards and gone, oh, sunspot on the moon, heading for Earth. I better tell them. So we'll talk about that. And audience questions from Rusty, Rennie, and Cowboy, all coming up on this episode of Space Nuts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10,
1: 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, five four. Nuts. Astronauts report it
0: feels good. And joining us to talk about all of
1: that
2: is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, hello Andrew. And just to, um, in case your intro there caused any alarm among our listeners, the sunspot is actually not on the moon; it's on the sun. Oh, did uh, I did not see the moon. <laughs> that would be weird. It would be weird, but <sighs> sunspots on the moon? I don't know. I quite like the sound of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe in its turbulent past. That's yeah, in its turbulent past, that's right, which is
0: um, probably one of the things that we'll get onto. So, Well, uh, might as well talk about it straight away and get get straight into it, because, I mean, it is our nearest neighbour, astronomically speaking, and we're doing a lot of stuff to get there. The, uh, uh, the, the Indians uh, the other day uh, landed there, and um, to much fanfare, I might add, they are thrilled, they are cock-a-hoop, the uh, uh, Indian yeah. Prime Minister's uh, jumping
2: for joy. I think most of the Indian population are as well. It's uh, such a big deal, and it's fabulous. and Massive deal. Rightly so. Uh, and, and, And if you were laying
0: bets like 50 years ago as to which nation would be fourth
2: to land on the moon, you wouldn't have said India, I don't reckon. No, and I, I think you know if you'd put bets on who was going to successfully touch down at the near the moon's South Pole, you would betted the opposition on that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Russia tried
0: but crashed, uh, and um, India slipped in as the uh, as the tortoise in that particular race. But uh, yeah, they're they're doing great things. But this particular story centres around China's exploration of the moon and the Chang'e Four mission. Uh, continues to make uh leaps and bounds
2: which is very exciting uh it's an it's a fantastic project and you know i keep um, in in my uh looking out in the on the news uh on on the news sources and um uh, uh, news wires i suppose is the correct way to say that i um I, I, and often see stories coming from 4 that uh, they've you know, little discoveries that, um, that, that always make you think, well, this spacecraft is doing great stuff. Mm. Uh, and it, actually, what's nice about our two stories today, Andrew, is they both come from rovers, but on different worlds uh, in the solar system. Yes. Uh, and they're looking in opposite directions. Uh, because Chang'e 4, uh, as I think we've discussed before, has a ground-penetrating radar on board. Um, as did its predecessor. Actually, the one that, um, that broke down and the radar worked very well, but the wheels didn't. That was the, the <laughs> earlier version of uh, I think that was Chimaera Three. Excuse me a minute. I'm just going to.
0: Yeah, you'd think with the fact that we uh, invented the wheel so long ago, we'd be getting it right by now.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's right. It's probably the tires on the moon's surface are a bit, you know, a bit, to, a bit to take in there. Yeah. Uh, and yeah we'll see how the um you know the indian rover uh, which uh is already on the surface and doing great things anyway mm. uh, back to chang'e 4 so its ground penetrating radar um has sent back information over the 5 years since chang'e landed It's 2018 when that spacecraft touched down on the far side of the moon incredible wow. that's gone so, fast uh, has not it fascinating. yeah There's uh, there's a you know we've we've seen records of uh, of the strata down to about forty meters uh, so far, Um, and that uh, you know has told us quite a lot about what's under the surface. But there's been some new research uh, which uh, comes from. Uh, A a mixture of Chinese and I think UK scientists, uh, the University of Aberdeen in Scotland is one of the participating organizations, as well as the Chinese Academy of Science and uh, Shenzhen University. Um, They have done some work uh, tweaking the data and they've now got a map that goes down to 300 meters below Mm -hmm. the surface. Uh, so it is. That's extraordinary. Uh, you yes. know, ha- what a way to do lunar geology or seleno- selenology, It probably should be called um, the, uh, the the s- study of uh, of the rock strata underneath the moon gives us insights mm. uh, underneath the moon's surface gives us insights into uh, what the history of the moon might have looked like. Uh, we've got a pretty good idea already from studies that have been done previously, uh, including the idea that the Moon came into being when an object that we call Thea, perhaps about the size of Mars, collided with the Earth in the Earth's very early history, uh, yeah. something like four and a half billion years ago, um, and that formed the Moon. It's actually one reason why the Moon is made of similar rock to the Earth, because uh, a lot of it came from Earth. Um, but there's also, um, we know that the subsequent history of the Moon had, uh, was pretty eventful because at that time uh, the solar system was a wild and woolly place with um, lots of things charging around and colliding with each other. Uh, and um, in particular, there's a feature on the far side of the moon called the Aitken South Pole Basin, um, which is a quite deep crater. So it's actually, I think it's one of the biggest impact basins in the solar system that we wow. can still observe. Uh, and that's obviously something very large very early in the history of the moon uh hit it there but there there were there've been other large collisions as well and we know uh that some of those um produced volcanic uh you know volcanic activity so when you look at the when you look at the moon even just with the unaided eye you can see the gray patches on it which are what we call maria the latin for seas because they were all always called seas in the old days and they are actually lava plains, uh, mostly basalt, on the lunar surface, um, and they are basically filling in uh, the dents in the surface uh, that were caused by impacts. Yeah, uh, and so that's you know that's um, uh, something that we observe on the near side of the moon. Now Chang'e is on the back side of the moon, looking down uh, into a layer that is not sitting. In a, 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 it, it's not actually sitting in one of the Maria because there aren't many Maria on the back surface of the Moon. It's sitting in a in a plane, a relatively flat plane, but it's a, a different sort of geology. But what mm. they have discovered is that uh, round about 300 meters below the surface, um, you find uh, essentially layers of lava. You find these lava flows that might mean that at some time in the distant past there were what we now call maria uh, like the ones on the on the side of the moon that faces us and there might have been those things on the backside as well uh, but they've been covered up um, by uh, successive layers of material which may well have come from the early history of the formation of the moon because we think the the, 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 far, the far side of the moon has a thicker crust and we think that's because uh, in the early history uh, when the earth itself was very hot, the side that was facing earth got hotter. Uh, and so all the sort of rocky type materials, which were currently v- vapour at that time, they condensed on the cold backside, not on the hot near side, and making the thicker crust on the backside. So I think this kind of supports that view. So they've got um, uh, you know 300 metres of various layers of material, uh, including broken rock, uh, dust, soil, um, that sort of thing but then uh oh, and apparently there's evidence for a, a a crater as well that is well below the surface yes. one that's been covered up uh and the layers of lava at the bottom uh showing that yes there was volcanic activity uh certainly early on in the uh in the you know in the in the history of the moon so
0: they They've used ground-penetrating radar and, and had a, a bit of a look under the surface uh, because up until now we've only really been able to scratch the surface, literally and figure, figuratively. Um, but, and they've found, uh, well, not surprisingly, they've found rocks and soil and mm-hmm. lava and, uh, you know, a bit of the history. Um, what might be further down
2: inside, beyond 300 metres? Um, probably thicker layers of lava because what, what they, when, when they penetrated these layers of lava, which are probably about the limits of, of how far down they could go with this, with these data, uh, they found that the layers, um, as you, as you get higher up, the layers get thinner, the lava layers get thinner. And so it's, you know, it's sort of, you can easily imagine that there were episodes of volcanic activity. where things were pretty hot to start with. so you got lots of lava and the fissures the the the, the you know the cracks in the ground were wider um, you'd get more lava flows in the earlier uh, time and then as that was covered up, the lava flows would get steadily thinner as the temperature falls and as the um, as the as the cracks in the rock close up because they're, they're you know because of this cooling. Mm-hmm. Um, so that sort of, suggests that if you could look further down still you'd find thicker layers of lava um, and i don't know whether we will be able to do that but they i think these authors are fairly confident that we might get more still more data from the Chang'e-4 uh, ground penetrating radar so it's a really interesting uh, page to watch if i can put it that way on the web uh, to see what um what Further, we might learn from this quite remarkable little spacecraft on the far side. Of it's the moon. really terrific, isn't it? They're doing great things. Are we likely to? Is the moon likely to have a core? Yeah, we think it does. Um, uh, it's not really known um, what it is like. Probably cold, uh, because the moon doesn't have a magnetic field. Uh, if the moon had a, a, a you know molten iron core like the Earth does. Uh, there will probably be more magnetism than there is on the moon, so the suspicion is that there is a metallic core at the center of the moon. Uh, that's the natural thing for any kind of planetary object that the iron sinks to the middle uh, because its own gravity pulls it down um, and yeah. so you get the metallic core and iron is a very common element in in the universe. So you get a metallic core um, but uh, as I said, the thinking is that that is pretty cold uh, on the moon, yeah um I mean. The
0: evidence is suggesting that the moon did sort of get forged out of the Earth after the um, impact of Thea. There there are a few other theories, like it was captured. Uh, One wonders um, uh, what it would have been like had it been captured. We haven't dismissed that theory, but I think we've almost written it off. Uh, But if it was a captured object, it probably would be a very different object uh, in comparison to what we've learned about the moon.
2: Yeah, that's right. So it was certainly, um, um, you know, until the Apollo era, uh, all bets were off as to how the moon was formed. And in fact, uh, a theory um, that owed its origin to um, George Darwin, who was Charles Darwin's son, George Darwin was actually an astronomer and he was interested in the origin of worlds rather than the origin of species like his dad. Uh, And he had this postulate that uh, the early Earth was rotating so fast that centrifugal force pulled off the uh, equatorial layers to form the moon. Mm. Um, Now, that doesn't work because we don't believe the Earth ever rotated fast enough to do that. Uh, But uh, once Apollo astronauts brought back moon rocks, and it was discovered that their sort of isotope ratios in the alum, in the uh, material of those rocks is identical with Earth. That said, okay, you've got an origin where the Moon has come from the Earth. Yeah, um, and just just going through the history of this a little bit. The um, and we've talked about this before, I know, but uh, one of the problems with the theor- the thea theory, or tier, you might call it T mm. H uh, I T H E I R T H E I A is the name. And it, uh, in I think in Greek mythology, Tia is the mother of the moon. Uh, so that's where it comes from. So this body, Tia, um, the pro- one of the problems with that theory is that in most collision scenario- scenarios, you end up with a moon that's made more of the rock from Tia than rock from the earth. Yeah. And that was always seen as a problem until, it's probably about three years ago now, researchers, if I remember rightly, they're in Japan, They pointed out that if the moon was, uh, if the Earth still had a molten surface when the Tia impact took place, and it may well have done because Mm. it was very early in the history, you know, it was probably the lava ocean uh, period of the Earth's history, which doesn't bear thinking about. No, and you splat this object into a into a wet Earth, and it turns out that theoretically, then. That you can predict that you're getting you're gonna get um, a moon that's made of Earth rock rather than tear rock That so, makes perfect sense yeah so mm-hmm. so that's it. I think that's the current best bet for the origin of
0: the moon yeah sounds like it all right um, we will watch with interest uh, with, uh, on the uh, the travels of uh, Chang'e 4 but if you'd like to read up on that story it's on the fizz.org website this is space nuts Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson.
1: Roger, your last we're here also. Space
0: nuts. From one rover to another, Fred. Let's uh, point our uh, investigative finger at uh, the Perseverance rover on Mars, which has been moving around on the surface uh, very successfully, uh, looking for things that might one day um, um, tell us more about the the red planet. Uh, But it just uh, had a bit of a, a look around the other day and looked up and went, oh. There's a sunspot. Don't like the look of that. It's um, it's heading towards Earth because well, uh, yeah. we ca- we can't see it yet, but they can see it on Mars. Isn't that extraordinary? I'm A bit uh, annoyed
2: that they didn't tell us sooner. <laughs> well, those pesky the- Martians. Yes, it's uh, Martians, otherwise known as uh, NASA mission scientists, uh, who are driving the rover. Um, so, I, probably a little known fact about Perseverance. Um, we, I guess, we all know it's got a it's something called the mastcam. Uh, which is a camera on a mast, as you might expect, um, mm. an amazing, an amazingly useful piece of equipment, uh, and it's been used to photograph all kinds of things, including uh, the um, uh, Ingenuity helicopter. Uh, uh, great stuff! But also, every day, um, a photograph is taken. Excuse me, a photograph is taken of the sun uh, mm. by the mast cam. so it looks up every day to the sun and takes an image. And that's partly, uh, it's, it's okay, it's to look at the sun, but it's partly to be able to sort of uh, estimate the amount of dust that there is around them in the atmosphere um, because uh, dust is always present on Mars. Uh, that's why the atmosphere is pink rather than blue or the sky is pink rather than blue. Uh, and so, um, and you know, dust storms can be extremely uh difficult uh, events on Mars because you get global dust storms we had one I think it was back in 2019 2018 or 20, I think it's 2018 the last big one last global dust storm um which covered curiosity with a lot of dust um, perseverance wasn't there then mm. uh, so um so you, you're always on the on the lookout to see how much dust there is in the atmosphere just so you kind of know what's coming. You yeah. do, and in doing that, obviously, you get a collection of images of the sun. But on one taken recently, a large, very large sunspot uh, group was uh, seen on the solar surface. And so, uh, the the orientation of Mars with respect to the Earth means that we cannot actually see that sunspot uh, because the sun's rotation hasn't brought it round to face the Earth yet. So um, now by the time this episode goes to air that sunspot might be, might be visible um, Andrew uh, and we'll know whether we're going to get solar flares and solar storms and mm-hmm. the kind of you know things that sunspots breed sunspots are hotbeds of magnetic activity on the sun and they're where solar flares originate and um, you know th- that sort of event control lots and lots of subatomic particles at high velocities. Uh, into the sun's environment, some of which might hit the earth at some point. In which case yeah,
0: and that's that's the concern, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Because uh, with all the electronics we are so reliant on these days, uh, right. a direct hit from a massive solar f- flare is, um, is not just going to be something that we can go, oh, well,
2: you know, no big <laughs> deal. It will be a big deal. It could be, um, given, as you say, our... Uh, reliance on electronics, particularly spaceborne electronics, because mm-hmm. uh, um, s- spacecraft are uh, in low Earth orbit. They're still protected by the, the Earth's geomagnetic field. Uh, once you get to geostationary orbit, though, uh, you're, you're outside that cocoon of protection. And so that's when you start worrying about your spacecraft electronics getting fried. Um, and, of course, even on the ground, you can get... Uh, Effects from uh, geomagnetic storms. I keep talking about it. The event in 1989 when uh, a geomagnetic storm kind of blew all the fuses in, uh, I think it's Quebec province, if I remember rightly, and something like nine million customers in Canada lost, lost their power supply for several hours mm. uh, because um, because all the all the overload switches tripped because of the magnetism that these subatomic particles brought with them. Yes. Uh, it, 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 And and there's been
0: some famous cases, that one back in the uh, early, when was it? Uh, Early 1900s, late
2: 1800s, something Uh, like that with the telegraph system. Yeah, that's right. right. That was the Carrington event, which I think was 1860s. Yeah. Nine sticks in my mind, that might be the wrong date, but it was that sort of era. And you're right, it was the, the, the infancy of the telegraph and a lot of telegraph wires burned out because the event was so strong. That was the... Strongest recorded uh, geomagnetic storm in history. Mm. Uh, so, um, and, and it came from a particularly active region on the sun. In fact, I think a bright spot was observed in the sunspot at the same time. And that's where the name Carrington comes from, because I think that was the astronomer, the name of the astronomer who observed it. Uh, so the solar flare, yeah, which, um, which certainly affected uh, planet Earth. Yes,
0: indeed. And uh, the, um, the NOAA organisation, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, uh, is responsible for basically offering alerts for these particular events. And they, they basically um, continually update people that um, these these events are happening. and they, And they do happen a lot more often than we think. They just don't yes. seem to affect us all that much. But they have had situations where there've been big blackout zones uh, and uh, there you know, was a case a couple of years ago where a big s- sort of chunk of the Pacific Ocean was blacked out and they lost communications with everything that was basically on the water around that area because uh, of, of what happened. Uh, so they're always uh, putting out warnings and sometimes they're small warnings, sometimes they're bigger um, but it also gives people a bit of excitement too, because you might get some really good auroras to, to look at yes, right. so sort they're of hitting the right part of the planet. But the big danger, I suppose, is that we will have a massive sunspot in direct line with Earth and a massive solar flare as a consequence. And that's the one that emergency services are really focused on. And uh, they, they do uh, a lot of uh, there's a lot of work going on these days. Uh, to ready us for such an eventuality. Hopefully, never, but it it, it is happening in micro pockets, if you like, yeah. Um, yeah. around the planet all the time. But what we're really worried about is a catastrophic event, something so big that it wipes out, you know, big sections of a country or or, or a continent or something like that.
2: Yeah, in terms of the power supplies and yeah, things, uh, yeah. the electronics. Um, I mean, it, it's certainly true that uh, protections are built in uh, when people design these things they know that there's, especially bearing in mind the Carrington event, which which um, was something that um, I don't think it would be catastrophic today, but I think it would make an impact. It would certainly mm. cause power failures and things of that sort. And it may damage spacecraft as well. A lot of uh, satellites have at least one side of them hardened against radiation uh, so with thicker metal uh, in their you know in the chassis the, the spacecraft bus uh, so you, and you turn that side uh towards the incoming particles if you can uh, that's the way these satellite operators yeah. work uh, yeah we, we know the the Sun operates on a,
0: an 11year cycle and uh, it's been it's been sort of Going through a different
2: phase recently, hasn't it? We're coming out of a minimum. So we're sort of heading towards the solar maximum time when you do get more of these events. Right. Uh, so yes, that's correct. Do we know why that happens, why it cycles like this? Um, it, it's, it was baffling until really quite recently. But there's now uh, an understanding of processes taking place within the outer layers of the sun uh, and something called the the solar conveyor belt, um, which is, uh, you know, if you imagine a fictitious conveyor belt running from the sun's pole to its equator, uh, that is a magnetic phenomenon that carries the sunspots further <clears throat> away from the equator. There's um it's been well well known, probably for getting on for a couple of hundred years, actually, uh, that as the sunspot cycle goes through, sunspots appear at different latitudes. If I remember rightly, uh, they uh, their latitude increases as the sunspot cycle goes through. Mm. And that's ought to be due to this conveyor belt effect carrying things under the surface. And it's all about magnetism. It really is all based on intense magnetic fields. So the understanding is still not perfect, but I think we know a lot more than we used to about this sort of thing. Yeah.
0: I was just uh, having a glance at the Carrington event to try and learn more about it while we were talking, and what was extraordinary was uh, the effect it had Uh, not so much on the telegraph, even though that was uh, a telling factor, but uh, apparently it caused auroras that were so bright that it woke people up. The glow was so intense. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Which, yeah, can you imagine that? And uh, the, um, the auroras were seen at very low latitudes. Uh, Mexico, Cuba, Hawaii, Queensland in Australia, Japan, China, they all saw mm-hmm. the effect of this one geomagnetic storm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it must have been intense. Can you yeah. just imagine that?
2: Yeah, being woken up by the aurora, that's quite
0: a yeah. sure thing. Because of the glow. <laughs> yeah it's uh yeah m- amazing amazing stuff so um <laughs> uh, uh so with this particular um hole that they've uh or sunspot that they've observed through perseverance uh how long will it take did you say to to swing around and be yeah, visible to us
2: like a few days a week or something like that is that all yep it's not really okay, the sun's, so- sun's rotation is about it's about a month this i think it's 27 days on the if I'm all
0: right that. quicker than I thought okay so uh, it is um, uh, it is a good thing that perseverance is there and can spot these things for yeah, us right. not that we can do much about it because if uh, if it turns out that this sunspot is going to be in direct line with Earth well we're just going to have to grin and yeah. bear it and um, yeah. you know put our aluminium hats
2: on <laughs> or paper bags um, the um, <laughs> uh, I should just add though um, perseverance isn't the only thing that's looking at the sun from different angles there's a whole flotilla of spacecraft of which are specifically there to observe the sun mm. uh, so they'll they'll tell us more about it as time goes on but uh, I just thought it was really neat that we we see from one planet a different view of the sun and um, and you know get a forewarning
0: as you said absolutely yeah uh space.com is where you can find that story about uh, the sunspot they've got a, a great photo of it too from perseverance so uh yeah uh, and the uh, mandatory red ring added, added to the photo so you can see where the sunspot is, just in case you don't know what you're looking for. I think most people know what a sunspot like. It uh, looks like. Uh, this is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and keying with a go. Space Nuts. Okay, Fred, shall we answer some questions? Ooh, let's do that. Or we'll just play them and go, uh, I don't know.
2: All right.
0: Uh, First one comes from one of our regulars. It is Rusty from Donnybrook. G'day, Fred and Andrew. It's Rusty in Donnybrook. Fred, you seem to have some similar ideas that Adrian Berry expressed in his prophetic book, The Next 10,000 Years, which he wrote in 1974. Uh, Did his work? Have uh, any influence on you? You seem to have some similar ideas there. Um, just wondering to what extent that might have been. Thank you. Okay, yeah, thanks, Rusty. All right. Well, he's kind of put you on the spot there,
2: Fred. <laughs> well, I can tell. I can tell, Rusty. Uh, the answer is no. <laughs> 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 never, never heard of him, mate. No, no. <laughs> oh wow, <why am laughs> I know. I'm, I'm very poorly read when it comes to things like that. I should check it out though. Uh, thank you, Rusty, for that. I'll go. And have a look at uh, a book. Well, 1974—that's yeah. a time when I was certainly uh, very active in the in the space world. Um, um, I was working at the Royal Greenwich Observatory in 1974 on planetary ephemerides. Mm. <laughs> Do you know what they are? <laughs> no, <laughs> tables of where they are, their positions, um, and uh, so uh, my the bit of the Royal Greenwich Observatory I was working on. At was called Her Majesty's Nautical Almanac Office, and it was formed uh, in the 6th, uh, No, I came there. Yes, I think it was. Uh, might have been Halley who formed it okay. uh, back in the day. Um, and um, we we were all about planetary positions, about planetary orbits. So the research was, you know, in, in looking at the orbits of planets and um, how they interact with with each other. So that's what I was doing then. Um, I wasn't. Quite, I, I was still switched on to media stuff a bit because we um, we used to get calls from people wanting to know what they'd seen in the sky and things like that, and I had a lot to do with that. Uh, but that book eluded me, so I will check it out. Thank you very much, uh, Rusty, for pointing it out.
0: Yeah, uh, I've just done a quick um, squeeze for it. It's on uh, all of the major book platforms, but uh, it basically is uh, Adrian's um uh, work in, in trying to figure out what might happen in the universe um, and so on for the next uh, 10,000 years. Uh, and I suppose, um, you know, we're only just a bit past the first part of that 10,000 years in in real terms. So uh, maybe not much has changed, but I, we've learned so much in such a short sure. time. Yeah. It's possible that some of the stuff he's predicted might not have yeah. happened the way he thought. But um, apparently he passed away in 2016. But, uh, yeah, the next 10,000 years, a vision of a man's future in the universe is, um, yeah, could be a good read. So look out for that one. Uh, now, Fred, we uh, have an, another semi-regular in the form of Rennie who has got <laughs> three questions for us. Could have taken up the whole segment.
1: Hi, this is Rennie Traub from West Hills, California, I always enjoy each show. I have three questions, if you could answer, please. If the Earth was a moon, how different would life have formed on Earth if it was a moon? And uh, any other insights into what the world would be like if it was a moon instead of a planet? Uh, second question, will quantum computing give us any insight or maybe the origins uh, of everything and, and make things clear to us as far as the quantum world and uh, larger masses that work with Newton's laws? And the last question is, could there be elements... Anywhere in the universe that are not on the elemental table. Thank you. Love the show. Thank you, Rennie. Uh, I can answer the last
0: one. Yes, because they leave gaps in it on purpose just for that very reason. Is
2: that right, Fred? Uh, yeah, although... Potentially. Yes, yes. Um, it's, a re- it's a really good question. That. I mean, we're talking about the periodic table here. Yeah. Um, uh, that my understanding is it's pretty complete, oh, okay. Uh, because you know, there's a bit of history with this, uh, just answering Rennie's last question first. Uh, in that one of uh, if, if we go back, um, yeah, a hundred years actually, uh, people were still baffled by the spectrum lines from nebulae. So nebulae, clouds of gas that are excited by usually a nearby star, <coughs> uh, causing them to, to, to glow uh, with um, characteristic colors. And those colors uh, come from the emission of, element, uh, of light from elements at particular wavelengths. So hydrogen, for example, uh, has a very strong emission in the red part of the spectrum. It's a line, an emission line called hydrogen alpha. And then there's a whole sequence of them. Oh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Hydrogen beta is actually in the blue. <clears throat> anyway, um, there was a, a line found in Nebulae, which was a very bright one, a very bright green line, um, which could not be identified with any known element on Earth. So the way you do this, you look for things in space and you can... Uh, excite a gas on Earth with an electric current or something, and it gl- it glows with a characteristic glow. Sodium is the best known one. You remember the old sodium vapor lamps that have that orange, oh, yeah. yellow. That's a single, effectively a single line uh, in what's called an emission line. Just there, just emitting one characteristic color. And if you find that color in space, you know that there's sodium there. Mm. So they found this green line, but it was not uh, associated with any known element on Earth. And at that time, towards the end of the 19th century, the periodic table was being built up and there weren't any gaps. Uh, And that was why people were baffled by this because not only did they not know what this is, they could not see any way in which an element could exist that could cause that line. Um, They'd given it a name, by the way. They call it nebulium. Uh, Nebulium was supposed to be this element that was in a... Uh, in a, 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 only in nebulae, hence the name, nebulae, yeah. as being a Latin word for mist. Um, so, nebulium was a mystery, and it was actually a man called Ira Bowen, who uh, was an American astronomer, who in the 1920s worked out what it was. And it's actually, uh, if I remember rightly, it's oxygen, uh, which is behaving in a way that it doesn't on Earth. Because the pressure is so low in the nebulae, the pressure in nebulae is far lower than any you know vacuum that you could create on Earth, uh, or it was at that time. And so um, we'd never seen the fact that um, oxygen could emit what were called forbidden lines. Forbidden lines are forbidden energy tr- energy jumps in the electrons, mm-hmm. um, and they're forbidden on Earth because there's. Too, the pressure's too high, but they're not forbidden in space. And he made the breakthrough that said, well, "What we're seeing is oxygen, not not some new element." So nebulum went into the waste bins, and and so it was the periodic table that kind of helped with that. So I think the answer is no uh, to Rene's last question about will there be elements that we we um, that don't fit into the periodic table?
0: Um, okay, well going... I, I'm going to say maybe. I like to be a bit more controversial. Yeah, yeah. I'd just like to stir the pot. Um, Are we going to keep going backwards or do you want to...?
2: Yeah, let's go backwards. (laughs) All
0: right. Quantum quantum computing, what's that going
2: to do for us? uh, Yeah. it is clearly will revolutionize the way we handle data um, because you've got so much more power available in a quantum computer than you have with a a standard uh, um, computer where you've just got binary bits.
0: Yeah. One or zero. yeah, my, my computer, even though it's you know not very old, um, is just about capable of adding basic numbers. So yours has only got zeros, it
2: doesn't have any ones. It's you? definitely a zero. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I think for handling large data sets, uh, clever analysis, things like that, I think that's where we're going to find quantum computing coming to our assistance. Whether it will of itself let us probe the quantum world any deeper, Uh, I don't know. It it might give us better tools to do that, but in in terms of computation, actually calculating things, but um, whether it's going to give us insights. Maybe it will. I don't know. Maybe we'll find out from quantum computing that things in the quantum world don't behave quite as we thought they did. Uh, So, yeah, there there is a possibility there, Renny. It's an interesting conjecture that you It is. He always comes up with those. He does. And what if the Earth was a moon? Yeah, so... um, it would depend, you know, like a lot of these things, the answer is it depends. Depends what it's orbiting. <laughs> yes, and how far away it's orbiting it. Yeah. Um, so we might well find ourselves, uh, if you, you know, if you imagine that we were the moon of a much bigger planet, uh, for example, Jupiter, something like mm. that, we would definitely be tidally locked so that one face would face the giant planet that we were in orbit around. So our month would be the same as our day, uh, as, as is the case on the Moon. Um, there might be other things as well. Uh, so, um, you know, Jupiter, if you imagine it was Jupiter, Jupiter's got this enormous magnetic field, and there's transfers of subatomic particles between Io, in particular Jupiter's innermost Moon, uh, or innermost large Moon, Uh, And the planets, planet itself, which is one reason why we get aurorae on Jupiter. Some of the particles come from uh, from Io, so uh, there might be phenomena like that that would be in the mix as well. So, yeah, all kinds of
0: interesting stuff would would make a life. It'd be very different, wouldn't
2: it? It could be. There might not be any life at all. uh, You know, depending on what sort of a a planet you were orbiting around, we'd be a lot shorter. Yeah, we. Yeah, we might be,
0: <laughs> or we might be a lot taller with a gravi- gravitational pull.
2: Yeah, might the, be taller. That's them. right. The uh, it could be the you know, the um, spaghettification that it yes. might be to You, you know. never know.
0: Interesting, Rennie. Love those what if questions. Thank you. And finally, from uh, a uh, Twitter, oh, no, I can't call it that anymore. What's it called? X from an X listener. who uh, calls himself Cowboy Tune. Hi guys. Question for you: How small can a black hole be? Uh, if you had a black hole the size of a tennis ball or something, how close could you get to it before noticing its effects, e.g. time passing more slowly as you, uh, as opposed to everyone else? Um, can they get that small? I, I know they did some tiny ones at the Large Hadron
2: Collider. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. yeah. Um, well, it, it, actually, it was, uh, yeah. you know, that was one of the um, criticisms when the When the new improved Large Hadron Collider was switched on, Mm. twenty eleven or twenty ten thereabouts, we destroy the planet. People saying, "Yeah, you're going to create black holes," Uh, and um, so what the Large Hadron Collider did was uh, on there. I don't know whether you remember this. They had a whole lot of webcams showing, you know, security cameras on the site, and uh, if you clicked on them. Uh, you could watch them and suddenly they'd all start disappearing and getting sucked in because uh, a black hole had been created. (laughs) I didn't know they did that. No, it was was very nicely done. And uh, the answer, of course, is that nature throws subatomic particles at us with much higher energies than the Large Hadron Collider could ever create, so uh, they don't produce black holes, so no. but um, So there there is a bit of an answer to this. Now, the if, if, if There is a theory, and it was Hawking actually who, who basically proposed this, that in the aftermath of the Big Bang, you got a whole series of what are called primordial black holes, which came in all sizes. They weren't just the mass of stars. They were all sizes, mm. um, some gigantic ones, uh, as well as some little ones, little mini black holes. Um, and in fact, they were for a while postulated as the cause of dark matter, uh, or being the source of dark matter, that these mini black holes were dark matter. You know w- w- what we see is dark matter because there were so many of them. There's no, no real evidence that that happened. Uh, it's still a conjecture that people look at and think about. Um, but uh, it's interesting that um, that uh, uh, we our, our ex listener, <laughs> uh, Twitter listener, former Twitter listener. Um, postulated the size of a tennis ball because that, if I remember rightly, is about the size of the event horizon of a black hole of the mass of the Earth. I think it's oh. 18 millimetres. Wow, there space. you are. So okay. a black an Earth-mass black hole would have an event horizon the size of a tennis ball. Uh, I don't know how far away from it you would have to be before you were immune to its gravitational effects. probably you could get fairly close before you started getting spaghetti-fied. Uh but I wouldn't trust it. I have to say if somebody brought me a black hole the size of a tennis ball and'd say take it away I don't want to be anywhere near it. Just put it in an aluminium box. that
0: aluminium's awesome stuff <laughs> yeah or a paperback or a paper bag put a, put a, uh, the black hole in an aluminium foil container. In a in a paperback, yeah, that that would do it. Yeah. We'd be we'd be fine. Mm. Uh, but we are learning that there um, are all sorts of uh, weird and wonderful things with black holes. Uh, we've still got a lot to learn about them. We're we're now able to image a couple of yeah. them. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so we we've got a reasonable look, but uh, yes, yeah, so many questions yet to answer about them. So many, um, but. Thanks, uh, Cowboy Tuned. Love love your question and appreciate you sending it in. Also, thanks to Rennie and Rusty for sending in questions. Uh, We've got um, uh, episode 370 coming up soon, so if you can get some questions into us, uh, that would be great. Uh, Just go to our website. I'm going to do that right now, and there it is. Uh, Click on the AMA tab. You click on that. And it says, um, sod off, we don't want to know. Uh, But it also says uh, you can um, answer, uh, you can download your question uh, just by uh, filling in the form, or you can uh, send an audio question. And the other way is to click on the right hand side send us your voice message. And voila, if you've got a device with a microphone, easiest easy as pie to send us a question just uh do, don't, don't forget to tell us who you are and where you're from is what i'm trying to say oh it's been a long day yes it's, it's, what is it 6 a.m gosh it's all you know <laughs>
2: um we're done fred thank you so much it's a great pleasure andrew uh always good to talk and always good to hear these listener questions as well are oh, they great aren't they i yeah, really enjoy them splendid Yes. Mm,
0: yep all right take care fred we'll catch you on the next episode thanks a lot see you soon. You too. Fred Watson, astronomer at large. And uh, thanks to Hugh in the studio for doing... Yeah, we'll do that next week. Uh, And from me, Andrew Dunkley, it's always great fun. We'll catch you on the very next episode of Space Nuts.